New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. No one can deny we're at the end of an era, the end of the industrial age, the end of empires, the end of the Mayan calendar, and at the end of an era, things speed up. As Michael Mead describes it, the end of an era becomes psychically charged, and things move faster and faster toward an uncertain future. He goes on to suggest the idea is not to deny the presence of tragedy and loss, but to realize that the great drama of the world goes on nonetheless. Today we'll be exploring the mythic level of what to do and how to act when it seems that all is headed for complete disaster with our guest Michael Mead. Michael Mead is a renowned storyteller, author, scholar of mythology, and student of ritual in traditional cultures. He has the unusual ability to tap into ancestral sources of wisdom and connect them into the stories we are living today. Michael is the founder of Mosaic Multicultural Foundation, author of World Behind the World, The Water of Life, he has many CD recordings, including The Soul of Change and Inner Wisdom. He is also the author of Fate and Destiny and Why the World Doesn't End, Tales of Renewal When All Seems Lost. Join us for the next hour as we explore how to cope with extraordinary change with our guest, Michael Mead. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Michael, welcome. Good to see you again, Justine. Good to be here. Thanks. It's great to see you again, too. Well, here we are. We're in a cycle of radical change, and the word apocalypse is really on a lot of people's lips. Um, so let's let's talk about that. What 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 are we doing? Where are we going, and where are we? One of the hardest things to do is to know the myth we're in, because the myth we're in has us long before we learn how to have it. And so the book, Why the World Doesn't End, is my attempt at pulling the veil back on the situation that we're in. And of course, apocalypse, the oldest meaning of it is to lift the veil and see what's behind the smokescreen, what's behind the veils. But in doing that, I went towards the, uh, the root word, which is apocalypsis, Greek word. In a sense, it means a period of um, chaos and creation. 
catastrophe and renewal, collapse and innovation. And so rather than simply meaning the end or the big fiery end, as it does, say, in Christian myths, um, it really means to be in the time of betwixt and between. And so I'm, I'm writing about it and talking about it in order to help consider that we are at the end of the world as we know it, uh, but we're yet, not yet in the beginning of the world that's trying to come. We're in that betwixt and between. There's an African term, jani. We're in a yes-no. Everything is yes-no. Is the world ending? Yes. Is it the final end? No. And so part of what I do is try to get at the language of ending. So for instance, the word end doesn't mean complete final conclusion. It actually means loose end or remnant. So at the end, there is no end. There's a remnant. And from the remnant, things begin again. And the model, you could say, is the forests. So when we're near the redwoods here, and the big redwoods go down, and they lay down, and then from them sprout the new trees. So mythologically and psychologically, we're in that end-beginning chaos creation. Michael, there has been precedent going before us of, of examples of this, where people cultures have said, okay, it's the end of the world. This is this is happening now immediately. I mean, the book of Revelation in the last book of the Bible of the New Testament, that it John talks about that. And and yet something came after. So can you speak about that? The end is always coming, but it never arrives. So what happens is when there's major change, when there's upheaval, which there was during the early Christian area era, Roman, the big Roman Empire, and then the Christians were really revolutionaries inside that, both psychologically, spiritually, and practically speaking. A lot of people think that, you know, John was on the island of Patmos, the Greek island in the Aegean Sea, and he was exiled for life, for preaching, and they think teaching revolution. And so it's while he's there in the midst of this upheaval and in his exile that he has the great vision that becomes the end of the uh, New Testament. And so that's the vision of fire and brimstone and the four horsemen and the frogs are falling from the sky and all that kind of stuff. But it's been interpreted typically literally as the end, and it even has the big capital letters, the end. And then again, I'm trying to say psychologically, mythologically, the end doesn't end. And so what I think they have a hold of is the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end is the collapse, the chaos, the upheaval, uh, the, the damage, and the things that we see all, all around us now. So I always say, people think the end is coming. It's already happened. We're in the beginning of the end, in a sense. The middle of the end is the idea of the, the revelation uh, and the revelations always have two sides, if you think about it psychologically. When people, things that are not commonly known, they fall into two categories, really terrible things, secrets that are hidden, um, all kinds of old wounds that have to come out. There's revelations on that side. And then the other th category of revelations is the surprising innovations and innovations. So in the middle of the end, so to speak, you get revelation, both of the dark things and also of brilliant things that are trying to arise. So, Michael, can you give us an example of how the wounds are being revealed uh, now, if, if this is the beginning of the 
Are you saying we're at the beginning of the end? Or? Well, I'm, I'm joking a little bit. Yeah. But because what happens is the, the literalists and the fundamentalists, which would include people looking at Mayan calendars, the long count calendar, uh, and thinking that it means that it, when it comes to the end, it ends. But that's not what it means. And I don't think the Mayans ever thought that. They were mythological people. They had imagination. At the end, it renews. Time turns over. But when it turns over, you get turmoil and upheaval, and you get, some people call it the great turning, I call it the great churning, because <laughs> things from the very bottom come up. And so a couple of ways to see that, I think, um, and you had mentioned the speed of what we're living in. So there's a tragedy. There's a shooting in a theater in Aurora, Colorado, and most people know about it within minutes. So that means that there's a revelation of tragedy, and tragedy cannot be kept locally. What was the old statement? It's the same to be alive in a tragic time as it is to be in a tragic place. Well, tragedy moves down. Remember they used to say, bad news travels fast. Well, tragedy fa travels faster, and everybody gets it now. So there's a revelation, in a sense, of tragedy. You can't escape it. You feel it. I mean, particularly the soul feels it. And we feel it because it's actually happening, but also we feel it because our soul knows tragedy and knows loss. And so the losses in the world are delivered instantaneously. The economic condition of the whole world is rattling and something happens in Greece and everybody else feels it and, and continues to feel it. So that's part of the revelation of the dark stuff. Then the other thing, though, is things that people sensed were true become literally revealed. And what I mean is the cynicism of politics, how people realize, wait a minute, they're not voting in the interest of poor people or voting in the interest of human unity. They're voting in self-interest. And now you have multi-billionaires buying the politicians in front of everybody. The, the super PACs, you know, it, which are kind of like bizarre. They used to hide that stuff. It's revealed now. You see what's there. But then the other side, where it turns, is the revelation. A lot of people see it in innovation, so that you have all the modern technology. But some of it is really innovative in, in a great way. And so the, it suggests the possibility of change, the possibility of even finding places of unity. And I think there's going to be more of that to come. I just came from this big sacred music festival, and it brought together sacred music from all around the world. And you could not do that before. You could not be in the space where in a matter of hours you heard, you know, quality music from Afghanistan and then sacred music from West Africa and then music from uh, Brazil. You couldn't be in the presence of that before until modern times. And I think you described it before we started the program. It was high tech, but in the middle of the woods. <laughs> I just love this. So you're, you're really grounded in nature but yeah. you're using all this technology to, to put out the music so everybody can hear yes. it and be part of it. Yeah, nature's the other big uh, revelation. In other words, the whole um, uh, Gaia movement, the attention to the earth, to the, the need to help sustain the earth. In, in, in the book, I have a, a story about Manu in ancient India. Manu was the prototype, the first human. And being the first human, he has to go through the first human experiences. And one of them, he has a problem. It doesn't say what the problem is, but humans have problems. And in order to consider what to do, he walks by the edge of the sea. 
And the sh- where the water meets the shore is the place of betwixt and between. That's why people walk there. And the positive ions mix with the negative ions and all this kind of stuff. And it's neither earth nor water. It's in between. It's Jani in Africa. It's the X in, in Gaelic, the place where change occurs. And that's why people are attracted to make decisions or consider things. And he's walking along and a little fish comes up in the sea and says, you have to save me. And, and the fish explains that the big fish are going to eat me if you don't save me. And so here's the first human being uh, called on by a different species to act in a way of interconnectedness. And so the first human has a choice. Does he do it or not? And he instinctively bends, bows down. I think that's significant. He's on the earth. He reaches in, takes the fish out, carries the fish home has to find a place to put it, gets a container, puts it in, feeds it, and it grows very quickly out of that container, much too big, puts it in a pond, grows out of the pond, puts it in, in, a, in a lake, grows out of the lake. Finally, he has to take it back to the sea, and he picks it up, and he carries it back to the sea. And it says in the old story, this is from the Vedas, it says that even though it was enormous, while he carried it, it wasn't heavy. So if I just stop the story there, what that tells me is when a person picks up the right job to do, the right piece of work to do, the right place to connect to creativity and nature, people can handle very big things and they won't feel as heavy as they might otherwise if it's the right work. Wonderful, wonderful image and encouragement. I'm here with Michael Mead. He's the author of Why the World Doesn't End, Tales of Renewal, when all seems lost. And if you'd like to check out his uh, website, you can go to mosaicvoices.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Michael Mead, and he's the author of Why the World Doesn't End, Tales of Renewal When All Seems Lost. Michael, you just told us a beautiful myth coming from India, and uh, tell me, tell us about stories. Why are stories important to us? Well, to me, the world is made of stories. So there's that old statement, uh, Muriel, Muriel uh, Rukeyser, the American poet, said, this world's not made out of atoms. It's made out of stories. And so I think that's kind of true. In other words, we're always telling each other the latest story. The, the whole news 
uh, cycle was built on stories. A relationship from the Latin relatare, to carry it back, really means to carry the story back at the end, you know, at the end of the day. How did it go for you? Here's what happened to me. The relationship is built on sharing deeper and deeper aspects of the story. And so we're narrative beings, and our part of our creativity comes from finding out where in the story we belong. So in the case of Manu, picking up the fish gave him the opportunity to participate in creation in a way, because at the end, what happens is the, the fish, um, when he puts it back in the sea, the fish says, thank you, because now it's one of the big fish and it's not going to be eaten. And and then the fish says, by the way, there's a huge deluge coming and there's going to be a flood and everything will be flooded. But So build a big ship. So it turns out to be one of the early Noah stories. Noah is kind of a latecomer. Uh, before Noah, there was Manu, there was Utnapushtim, all these old uh, mythological figures so, um, and they're the dreamers and they're creators. And so he makes the ship and he does the same thing of bringing the animals and the humans on the ship and they survive the storm and they land on the highest mountain, uh, which is the sacred place. And then the fish comes back and it turns out to be Vishnu, the god of creation, and it teaches Manu all the sacred rites and how to reconstruct or reimagine culture and how to make it a sacred thing and all. So it, so it turns out to be another of these recreation stories. Recreation story. Michael, we are depending culturally, more or less, on science to define reality. Yes. What you are saying is that there's another way, a deeper way, or or way that speaks more to our soul of of reality. Yes. And, and that comes in the form of these stories. Yeah. Mythic imagination. Mythic imagination, yes. yes. Science is inside a story itself, and it keeps forgetting that. Uh, and the word science, I think, means uh, to seek knowledge. Um, it's about knowledge. And so one of the places that science has gone is into the matter of the universe, and it had to go high and deep at the same time. And so you have astrophysics looking at the universe and getting finding... The, so this is, a to me... This is the, uh, the bright child of the Enlightenment. So what happens then is they go out into space and they get bigger and bigger telescope, telescopes, putting light out into the universe, looking for knowledge. And what do they find? Darkness. They're now saying that the universe is 94% dark matter and dark energy, and inside that there are black holes. And then they, come, then they say, you can't see anything in a black hole. And then I've been joking lately, they started listening to the black hole, and they heard sound. And they really did start. They really listening. did, and they yeah. heard sound coming out. And all of a sudden, you're all the way back to mythology. In the beginning, in, in the Western world, they say in the beginning was the word. In Africa, they say in the beginning was the sound. In Mayan creation myth, they say in the beginning was the sound. And the sound of the beginning is still reverberating through the earl, through the world. It's the resonance of creation. And each person who comes to life uh, resonates in a certain way with the world. And if a person can find their proper resonance back to the idea of the project of one's life, then they can be the partner of creation. And in this case, the partner of recreation as we go through this big collapse. And so I'm, I'm going back to these old mythic ideas that say that humans can be the co-creators of the world, not in that sense of past centuries of dominating the world, but of being tuned in properly, the inner nature of a given person tuned to nature, 
as it would be, for instance, Native Americans here in North America, each person's soul was considered to be connected to a particular kind of tree or a particular animal or bird because our inner nature is tuned to nature. And so there's this tuning process that may be happening in the black holes too. Just turn the telescope the other way, it goes the nuclear telescope. They're going down and down and down, and they're sure they're going to find the original piece of matter. And then it turns out matter turns into energy. And then energy turns into matter. And what is that? That's creation, recreation, or creation, change, recreation. And then they say the observer can affect the dynamic between matter and energy. And we are the observer, just like Manu in the old story in India. We are the observer. So it's not that we're in charge, but if we can be tuned, first of all, we're happier. But second of all, we are beginning to contribute to the song of creation, which is called creation ongoing. And so one of the big problems of the modern Western world is literalism. Mm-hmm. Fundamentalism in theology and literalism in, in the rest of things. And in, in literalism, the idea is that things could come to an end or the idea that it has to be a certain way or the idea that there's a particle down there that's going to solve everything. And that's just a limited view. Mythic imagination says we are in the age of wonder, we are in the place of wonder, and our job is to open to our imagination as much as possible, and then, I think, find our individual thread and our individual entunement. Think of Carl Jung. He said, when you find your deep self, you automatically contribute to the world and make things better. He's the exact opposite of Freud who thought down there was darkness and trouble and the primal horde. And Jung said, no, down there is the golden self and the divine connection. And when a person finds that there, they co-create it. They're contributing to creation in a modest, humble way, but in a meaningful way, especially in a time of change. One of the ways that you get to this in your book is that you, you bring out another myth and this is the myth of the old woman in yeah. the cave. So maybe you can share that because it, it talks about this thread in towards the end. So this is the first uh, story in the book. And in a sense, the book is a book of not creation stories, but recreation stories. And so I found them from cultures all over the world. I'm, I'm still finding them. But So this is a North American uh, myth that are, several tribes have it. Old woman lives in the cave. It's called a cave of knowledge. You see the sudden uh, thread back to Plato, Cave of Knowledge. And she's in there weaving the most beautiful garment the world has ever seen. And she's gotten down to the hem of it. She's been weaving for a long time. That's why she's the old woman. And she wants to make the hem really surprising and, and, and you know, s- splendorous. And so she makes it out of porcupine quills because a quill could stick you. And she turns it instead into an element of design. In order to do that, she has to bite on the quills. And so she's biting for a long time, biting the quills. And then every once in a while, she has to stop and go to the back of the cave, where is the great, there's a great fire, which she calls the oldest thing on earth. And in it on there is a cauldron. And in the cauldron are the seeds of all the flowers and all the grains and all the beans and all the herbs and all the things that are necessary to the world. And if she doesn't stir the stoops, soups, so to speak, then the seeds will burn and nature will be damaged. While she's going, and she goes slowly because She's been old and working hard. Woman's work is never done. She's going back. And then the black dog, what black dog? The black dog comes over to the beautiful garment. 
and it pulls, picks up a loose thread and begins to pull, and it unravels the entire garment she's been making all of this time. And when she comes back from stirring the soup of nature, her beautiful garment is completely unraveled. So there's this tremendous moment where she stands there in silence. What do you do when you see it unraveling or unraveled? She sits down and she too picks up a loose thread and she begins to weave all over again. And as she weaves, a new design occurs to her and she knows this is the most beautiful design anyone has ever seen. And she starts weaving again. So this is a North American myth of the collapse and the renewal, the chaos and the creation. And they're putting in it a very simple story, the whole story. And so what I say to people is, we want to be with the old woman, with the old woman of the earth, because she's in a cave on the earth, with the old woman of knowledge, which was called Sophia. We want to be with her, and we want to have our thread and help this reweaving of the world, because we already have the chaos and the collapse going on. And in the, in the story, they say, the elders say, a lot of people say, if we just didn't have the black dog, it would all be perfect. She'd finished the garment. You no, know, when I first read it, I thought, <laughs> oh, the dog, and I felt, I felt badly for her. But yeah. then as you go on with it, yeah. you realize that's a, that's a very big part of the story. The elders, they say, the tribal elders say, if it weren't for the black dog, she finished the garment. The garment that we're talking about is this earth, the great green woven garment and the great many-colored garment of culture woven together. That's what she's weaving secretly in the background. If she ever finishes, it's all over. Completion means death. So be thankful for the black dog, or as the physicist might say, be thankful for chaos theory, mm -hmm. because only after chaos comes the new order. And so that doesn't mean we're not hurting. It doesn't mean we're not suffering. It doesn't mean that the disparity between the rich and the poor, which is a form of chaos, isn't getting greater. It doesn't mean that we're not in the hard times or what in India they call the Kali Yuga, the dark times. But it means that from that darkness, from the black dog, from the chaos, comes another creation. And since we happen to be here and we're the only ones here, the humans who are alive, why not take the side of the old woman? Why not take the side of creation? Why not find our own thread and even in the midst of uncertainty and pain, learn how to weave and create? Michael, you keep saying recreation. And, so. and you're, you're not talking about like uh, going for an improvement on the old or going for tweaking the system like, okay, well, it was really good here. Well, all we have to do is just tweak it a little bit. You're talking about some recreation. What what? Can you say more? Well, in mythology, what they say is the earth doesn't go for minor repairs. It likes major upheavals. See, the, the, the earth and, and the cosmos, the universe, whatever you want to call it, the world, is not insecure. We are insecure. The old woman, you look at the story, it's her dog. She knew it was there. And, and actually, the story is brilliant because mythologically it's brilliant. It says, here's the three pieces of the world. One is weaving beauty, the wonder of creation. One is what is now being called sustaining, stirring the pot and keeping the temperature not too hot, global warming, not too cold, freezes everything off, keeping this pot stirred properly. That's the sustaining energy of the world. And the other one, the necessary one, is the unraveling. It's showing the three parts of creation. 
And we live it. Our lives are that way. We Hopefully everybody has periods where the garment of their life is, oh, wow, I'm in love, or oh, wow, this is so beautiful. I found my path. And everybody, once you find your path, you still have to do the laundry, rake the yard, take care of the children. That's And, stir. and, and your plans don't always work out. They unravel. You think you've got that vision. Mice you and make men. your intention. You go for your goal, and it all unravels. Because there's something else going on. And in the unraveling, we're supposed to find the next design. I mean, I've studied initiation in cultures throughout the world. And what happens... Let's talk about initiation, and just as a big subject, I'm here with Michael Mead. He's the author of Why the World Doesn't End, Tales of Renewal When All Seems Lost, and also the uh, CD set, Inner Wisdom. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Michael Mead. He's a renowned storyteller, author, scholar of mythology, and the author of Why the World Doesn't End, Tales of Renewal, When All Seems Lost. If you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to the website mosaicvoices.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Michael, we were just starting to launch into uh, the subject of initiation. Yeah. You've really studied that quite a bit worldwide. Tell us uh, a little bit about initiation and why that's important and where we are in the world today in Western culture in relationship to initiation. <clears throat> there's an old saying, there's two big stories in this world. The story of the world, uh, the great song of the world, and the story of the individual human lives in it. And the two get connected. Um, it's not that humans are that important. It's that the human soul is connected to the soul of the world. So if you take the idea that the world, um, or people now call it the planet, right? The planet means wandering star. That's what the word means. We live on a wandering star. And um, since it's this star and it's part of the manifest creation, it is not insecure. It's just like tigers are not insecure. They wear their stripes and they walk around. And things happen and they go. They know what to do and they know how to be. We are the great doubt of the universe. We're the cutting edge. We're the unfinished part of creation. We're, we're, we're the thread that's trying to find its way in. And as a result, we doubt and we're insecure, but we have those moments of creativity. And, and when real creation occurs... It's transformation, that was one of the old names, which means to trans from one form to another. And so initiation was the idea that a person could completely change during their life. And at the end, they weren't the same person. Maybe more subtly, you could say there's something inside a person that doesn't change, the thread of their life, and everything else should change and could change. In other words, the more we hold the thread, the closer we get to the meaning of why we're here, 
which would be what initiation is about, the more we awaken to that, the more we radically change as a person. And I'm saying that that's similar to what's happening in the world, that the world, in order to continue creation, changes in radical ways, and that we're in the middle of that. And so at the end of the book, so we have the old woman with the loose threads reweaving the world. At the end of the book, I bring in an Irish myth, uh, which says that um, the Irish had all these myths about the center. Actually, there were two centers, the Hill of Tara, uh, the Hill of Kings and the Hill of Queens, because they didn't really have that gender uh, blindness that has become so common. And so they had to have a king and a queen, so they had two hills. Um, but when those two got separated, or whatever happened, darkness came, then the center disappeared. That's why Yeats later writes in his poetry, you know, when the center falls apart and the falcon cannot hear the falconer, he's drawing on Irish myths about what happens when the, there's emptiness in the middle or darkness instead of the two hills of imagination. So you could say when, when the center falls apart, you get polarization. The Democrats and the Republicans disagree on everything. Whether you should have coffee or tea, they'll, they'll argue for months um, because there is nothing there. It's already gone hollow. It's not just stuck, it's empty. This is mythologically, I think. All right, so the Irish have the myth, when it goes empty in the middle, the middle's supposed to be the full center from which everything comes. When it goes empty, you can't lose the energy of creation. I think the scientists agree with that now. So what used to be at the middle is now at the edge. So they say when the center falls apart, go to the edge. Then they say in the myths, you go to the place that looks darkest to you. That's the big challenge. That's the courageous move, to go to a dark place. Again, it's like the woman dealing with, in the cave dealing with creation. The black dog is black because it's representing the darkness. So anyway, if a person goes to the place that is both fearful to them and intriguing, they will find a thread. And then all a person has to do is learn how to pull their thread. And if enough people do that, they all pull the threads back to the middle and now you're back in the other story, and everything gets rewoven from the threads of all that was lost. So that's the Irish idea, that we don't save the world by some big idea or heroic movement. That's the old, shall we say, paradigm. Uh, that's the old way that got us in an awful lot of trouble. But now it's more about each person pulling their thread. And in pulling our thread, our own lives begin to make sense. And then we contribute that sense, that attunement, that awakenment to the central weaving. And then we're part of the recreation of things. So are you saying that in, in this progression, let's say, of, of falling apart, there have been a series of falling aparts? Yes you know, worldwide. And in this progression, we're now at a place where we each have to be a leader, so to speak. Yeah, we have to pull our thread, which requires um, kind of courage, uh, because the hardest thing is to believe oneself, and yet there's really nothing else we have to offer. I remember the Dalai Lama said something that, that really struck me, about how important it is to have confidence in ourselves. Yeah. And in, in Western culture, we're taught something quite different. We're, we're not taught to be courageous or confident in ourselves, that we have something really to contribute. In our essence. Yes. And the word confide means to be in an intimate conversation. 
So one of the jobs is to be in intimate conversation with oneself. I know I was here last time talking about fate and destiny because I wrote a book about that, which was about finding one's own genius. So the old Latin word was genius, but it comes from North Africa where the word is genie, and it means the spirit that is already there. So everybody is born with the spirit that's already there. You could call it your spirit thread. You could call it your creative thread. You could call it your purpose in life. All those things apply. And so in a kind of exaggerated way, it's kind of time for everybody to find their genius and live it. Because those are, and those are just the threads of genius, but when they're woven together, just the way that's how you make community, the unity of awakened individual threads, that's what's required. The way I look at it now, the unraveling has gone so far. All aspects of nature are threatened, rivers and forests and all that kind of stuff. Uh, even the seeds are threatened in the sense of replacing them with manufactured things and so on. And then all aspects of culture are threatened. The financial system is rattling. Why not have a new financial system? Why not see what the great imagination wants to do with finances? Education is collapsing as we talk. All the institutions are hollowing out. And so everybody, there should be no one unemployed. You know, they're just looking at employment the wrong way. They're thinking about jobs inside of capitalism. How about projects inside of recreating then you know, everybody would employed be employed accurately exactly <laughs> michael i'm i'm reading a book called reality is broken by jane mcgonigal i just had brunch with her and, oh yeah, all she's right. great all right well you well, you go well, you got to put in a good word i want her she's great. i want to sit across from her and yeah. and the games that she is creating and she knows about of the great collaboration this is a major thing going on. Can you say something well, about this, that? See, so this is what I'm calling apocalypsis. So you say one of the darknesses or things falling apart is 97% of young people are online playing games. This includes gang members. I work with gang kids. They're online. And so, so then the older folks say, oh, that's terrible. They shouldn't be doing it. I, I was one yes. uh, until, so what until she I picked said up is, this well, book. Why don't we go see what they're doing? <laughs> so you go over there. Now, it turns out that the key thing inside the games is the building up of self-confidence because, not just because you win, that's the old paradigm, because you lose gloriously. You take on the challenge and you both win and you lose. And, and in a lot of the games, you develop what they call the archetype and you get, you get uh, kudos and rewards and you get a bigger personage in the vir- virtual world. So her brilliance, I think, and she gets this instinctively, is to say, rather than say, that's ridiculous, they shouldn't be doing it, she said, why don't we go join them and reshape the games and aim them back at the world? And so she started creating games that, for instance, there's one where young people go online and you have to pay always to be there, you know? it was, Remember, the internet was free until you had to pay. And so they're paying to play the game and the money's going to a town in Africa that has no school. And everyone playing the game is building a school for children who have never had a school. And so her theory is go visit in the virtual world, since this world is already broken, collapse, catastrophe, beginning of the end, and then there, let them learn how to build things that are meaningful. And young people are always altruistic if they are given a chance. And so here are young people all over the world building a school for young people who never had a school, and that's their entry back into reality. And they're having fun doing it. It's not like work, but 
it's hard. It's 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 hard work, but not in the normal sense. In the normal of, sense, not simple responsibility, not taking on this world and doing your job until it's time to require, but having this interaction that's surprising. So it's one of those examples where it seems like a black hole the kids are going to, and then she has the idea of bring them back into the world as creators who are taking on bridge. So through her games, they do uh, ecological work as well as culture building. And so that's the same principle that you wind up going into darkness and then you pull your thread back and now you're helping the world. And as in the case of Manu, at the very beginning, he was helping the little fish and the kids in her games are helping those kids that don't have a school. So you have educated kids that have more than they need helping kids who never had anything have a school and, and certain secret connections are being made. And I think that's the innovation, recreation, and it's surprising. It cannot pre be predetermined. You were surprised by her. I was surprised by her. She's brilliant. She's, She's brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. brilliant. This is Jane McGonigal. Yeah. We've talked about young people. Well, actually, it's more than young people that are doing that games, doing the games. But the elders, your true, what is a true elder has to do with someone who's bringing the gift of healing. Can you say a little yeah, bit about that? Yeah. I want to pull one more thread regarding oh, please. Jane. Okay. The reason she wanted to talk, our conversation was how does myth apply to the virtual world? Because she had realized it's all stories. All the games are stories. And, and, the, and the, the young people become the main character in the story that they're playing, which uh, in ancient Greek theater was called the protagonist. And all actors other than the main characters were called hypocrites. So the job of a person is to become the protagonist on the stage of life in their own play. Another, another thing that's similar to that. But where were we going? Well, before we go to elders, I just want yeah. to say more more about that. That is, the, the games, they have an epic yeah. dimension to them, yeah. and that appeals to us as human beings. Well, and she figured out they were mythic, yes. and that's what the conversation was about. And I was surprised that she was interested in myth, and then I was doubly surprised when I found out that myth is the background of a lot of the games. And so the conversation we were having was about how, how can myth be made more present and particularly the myths of creation and recreation, because that's what the young people want. See, they ins they're ahead. They instinctively know something's very wrong here. Where is the brightness? Where is the, you know, knowledge? Where is the wisdom? Um, Stanford University, I right. just was talking, they're going through a big change regarding that stuff, too. Education exactly. is being affected by all Got of it. this. I'm here with Michael Mead, and he's the author of Why the World Doesn't End, Tales of Renewal, When All Seems Lost. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Michael Mead. He's the author of Why the World Doesn't End, Tales of Renewal When All Seems Lost. And also, many CD sets, and the newest one is Inner Wisdom. Michael, we were just beginning to talk about the elders, what a genuine elder might be. Well, in the book, one of the reasons I I began with the old woman and the unraveling and the recreating is because um, in, in the native tribes in North America, like other places, they consider the elders to be the living storehouses of wisdom. And so the way I write about it, um, one reason she can pick the thread up and start reweaving, she'd been through this before. An elder isn't someone who lived a really good life, uh, in a sense, and, and come out okay, you know. The elders are those who suffered, who lived through their own weaknesses, who lived through their own losses, and out of that began to build a character, a real character, and also learn who they really are, and learn what qualities in them are qualities of survival. So um, in most cultures, the elders are the wise people. They're the people you go to for help. In so they're, Af- they're like resilient. They're resilient and resourceful. And like in Africa, they say you can't shock the elder because he or she has already been there. So you go with this big, terrible thing you do, and they go, oh, okay, you did that. Huh? They're not that surprised because they, they live their own sorrow. They live their own brokenness. And so here we are, I'm just thinking in terms of America. Now, America's different. We have all these old people who don't have to work, maybe. Now, many of them do, and I'm, I'm going to be talking in general terms. But my question is, why would a culture produce a high percentage of older people? Um, I, I, I don't know the details and the numbers very well, but some, you know, thousands and thousands of people turn 60 every day because the, the baby boom back in the 60s, is now, the, I call it the potential elder bloom. Ah, elder bloom. It's, okay. like, it's like if the revolutionary, revolutionary recreative energy of the 60s could awaken in those who are old, older now, they could be leading something in the culture or supporting something. The idea is an elder is an old person in whom the archetype of the eternal youth is completely awake. So inside the elder is this awakened youth. Yes, the body's wearing down. Yes, we have to slow. And we slow down. The body goes down and a lot of things go down. But inside the awakened mind or the awakened soul has the eternal youth in there. And so the elders are supposed to be the living library. Um, Not the facts of the matter, but the understanding of drama. And the elders are those who survive, right? They're the older ones. And so in most traditional cultures, the elders are the the source of the energy for survival and not giving up, as well as the imagination of renewal. And so I'm just waiting for American older people to stop being afraid, you know, Everyone's going to die. There's no sense being afraid of that. It's happened so far to everybody. Um, The issue is not to fear death, but to live life fully. And living it fully means voting for change, voting for imagination, voting for recreation. And the elders are responsible for making or shaping a world that gives young people the best chance. So that another another Native American tradition is the elders make decisions— um, based on what's going to happen seven generations down the line. Now, I don't think the con- Congress has this notion yet, 
but <laughs> no, hardly. I mean, nothing. Nothing is happening, and or corporations. It's the next quarter. And the bottom line, you know, is always blind. So, the elders are the opposite of that. They're saying we're going to die. We know that. What's life really about? What's beauty really about? How do we leave something in this world that allows the next people coming to have a full life? People feel that inside their family with their children, but the elders feel it for everybody. So if I'm imagining seven generations down the line, I'm not part of it. Therefore, it has nothing to do with me. So I should now be in a bigger vision beyond myself. That's the job of the elders. They become the mythic information keepers. Knowing that things keep recreating and renewing, how do we help that energy happen? And so I talk about things like um, you lose short-term memory. It happens to everybody. Um, it's not a mistake. It's in order to recall long-term ideas. Uh. You don't know the names of your grandchildren, but you could be living in a great mythic imagination that could help all the neighbors. Just the way people lose their sight somewhere after 40, 45 years of age. And people think, oh, we should fix that by messing with genetics. But I think nature has another idea. After 45 years, you've seen enough. You don't need sight. You need vision. And vision transcends the immediate. And, and so the elders are supposed to be the source of renewal uh, ideas and also the stability. And uh, unfortunately, and I'm just going to say this in general terms, the old, I call them olders. You have the elders and you have the olders. Everybody gets older, not everybody gets elder. And often the olders in this country keep voting out of fear. The, the, the elders would naturally stand up and say, I'm sorry. These automatic weapon things are really pretty interesting. And they might have a use in some battlefield somewhere, but they cannot be in the streets. They cannot be in the hands of people who are deranged. And they are not necessary whatsoever. Let's take all that would go into that and put it into education, and let's have education be about imagination. You know, this would be the job of the elders. And the real decisions in a culture would not be made by politicians. The real decisions would be brought to the elders, who would sit and say, I'm going to die. So this isn't about me. This is about life and its bigger aspects. So I should make a decision based on what is life enhancing. That's really, you could say, the elders have to vote for what is life enhancing. And that helps nature as well as culture. And the elders in all cultures are mythic. They, they, they're paying attention to the story, the big story. So that's my thought about it. Michael, you also talk about how it's really important for us to look into the darkness, to not be afraid to look into the darkness. In fact, it's necessary. Yes. So can you say something about that? Well, one of the premises in this book, so I'm, I'm making the kind of mythological argument that the world can't end. But that doesn't mean we don't look at all the endings. It's in looking at all, all intelligence comes from admitting I don't know. All knowledge that we're looking for has to be one step beyond where we are. We wouldn't be looking for it. And so whether it's the uncertainty principle in, in science or the willingness to face dark things, there's a courage required. Um, how do you say it? The, mythologically. The world disappears every night. You can't tell because the lights are on 24 hours now. But in the ancient world, the whole world disappeared, and all you could see was the universe of the stars and the movement of the moon, which is the big changing energy of the world. So you could also say we're in lunar times as opposed to so with all the changes going on. But anyway, 
after the great darkness and people living either on the ground or in tents, and, and they become aware of darkness. They feel darkness and they know it. And then the dawn comes back. And that's the recreation of the world every day. And the light pours back in. So people used to instinctively know that you needed darkness before the light would come. Or the other image they have is, you know, they say inside each heart is a candle burning. This is Rumi. And, um, but if you take the candle and put it out in the middle of the road in the middle of the day when the sun is at its height, it's not impressive at all. You don't see a flame. You can barely see it. But you put the candle in the dark. Now you see beauty. You see illumination. Light requires dark to be seen. Um, this, that's this world we live in, you know? And so um, in the Enlightenment and in the rise of white culture, there is no real white culture, but the idea of whiteness, the White House we have at the top, and then the bright light of the Enlightenment. We, we went a little crazy there, and we avoided darkness. And the old uh, translation for uh, wisdom in ancient Greek was dark knowledge. So those who really know, know darkness and light. Those who are wise know their own fallibilities, their own inner weaknesses, and their own dark areas. Jung talked about it also. If you don't face the dark parts of yourself in the shadow, you're not a whole person. And you said earlier, like, when the center breaks apart and then it goes out to the edges, and the edges, it's yeah. darkness. Yeah. It, 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 there, and the light that, that's so, missing, you have to go to the dark to find to, it. To find it. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's what you're saying to us, not to be afraid of that, that no. this is a good thing. This is a... Powerful thing. Good or bad, it's it's 50% of everything. Or, according to the astrophysicists, 94% of the universe is dark matter, dark energy, and black holes. We are actually living in the darkness all the time and don't even know it. And then if you say a human being is a small micro-reflection of the cosmos, right? That was the old idea. We're the microcosmic reflection. Well, that means we're 94% darkness inside ourselves. When people say to a lot of each other, you know how they do it, they say, how are you? You should say, well, the 4% of me I'm more or less aware of is doing good. <laughs> the 90, the black holes, you know, I don't know. And the other 94% of dark energy, I'm right. not even sure what it's up to. In other right. words, we're in the darkness all the time. So are, and we only have like 30 <laughs> seconds left, and I'm going to ask you a big yeah. question. Are you optimistic about the future? Um, I, I guess I wouldn't use the word optimistic exactly. Um, It's just not my kind of word. I think the whole world, universe, story is tipped slightly towards brilliance. It's tipped slightly towards renewal. And I think that it gets very dark. Uh, In India, they talked about the Kali Yuga going on for tens of thousands of years. But all that darkness creates all the brilliant spirituality coming out of India. So, so I think that the world is slightly tipped and that when it comes down to brass tacks and the really deep stuff, it tips towards recreation. And so th- that's how I think about it. Thank you, Michael. That is The light's trying to come back and it comes back from darkness. Thank you. I've been speaking with Michael Mead. He's the author of Why the World Doesn't End, Tales of Renewal When All Seems Lost. And you can find his website by going to mosaicvoices.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org.
org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3448. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.